Open up to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 13 through 17, just a short passage today, which never equates to a short sermon, just to get that out of the way. That's right. (laughs) I want you to start by imagine being absolutely lost. Don't, Don't poke the person next to you if this is like true of them, okay? Absolutely lost. Now, Imagine you are lost in the woods in the middle of nowhere. Now, imagine you're lost in the woods in the middle of the nowhere in the middle of the night. Starting to be a little nervous now, right? Some of you maybe like survival types are kind of like, bring it on. Yes, live for this. The rest of us think you're nuts. That's right. Now, imagine you're lost in the woods in the middle of the night and... It is your fault. Wrong turn, walked off the path, drove your car into a ditch, I don't know, whatever. You're there, and it is all your fault. And you wander around for hours, and you're just completely lost. And you're starting to get nervous. You don't really have a place to sleep. You have nothing to eat, nothing to drink. And then suddenly you see a path, or rather you see a light shining through the trees. And that light gets closer and closer to you. And it's held by someone who obviously knows what they're doing. They're geared up to be in the woods. And they come up to you and they say to you, follow me. I'll get you out. I know the way. What are you going to do? No, I'm good. I'm good. If you just leave me alone, I'm really good right now. I like what I'm doing. (laughs) Would you say, thank you. Yes, that's what I want. I'm going with you. And you would hopefully get out of the woods. Today in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, we are going to be looking at this passage. It's very familiar, I think, to many of us. Jesus, at the very beginning of his public ministry, right? We're we're past the Christmas story. About 30 years have gone by in Jesus' life. 30 years that we really know very little about. There's a little glimpse in Luke of his dedication, or not his dedication, kind of his bar mitzvah, as we would say today, later on at the temple. That's really about it. There's a little blip around 12 years of age. And then we fast forward to this, and he's somewhere between 30 or 33 years old, And we're introduced to him again, and he comes on the scene, and he's baptized by John the Baptist. And we need to look at this passage, because this is what I'm calling an inconceivable baptism. Inconceivable. Yeah, what's that from? Come on. The best movie ever. And if you disagree, you can leave now. No. Yes, sorry. I couldn't help it. I Actually, I tried to work around this word to not use it from the, that movie, but it just fits so well. In, inconceivable means, to make sure the word really means what you think it means, inconceivable means not capable of being imagined or grasped mentally. It is unbelievable. Not able to be conceived of. Not able, able to be thought about. Doesn't make sense. You look at something and go, what in the world is going on? That makes no sense. And when we come to this passage, that's what we're going to see. Let's look just at two verses, verses 13 and 14 of Matthew chapter 3. 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John's looking at this going, whoa, wait a minute, this is all messed up. This is backwards. Jesus, you should be the one baptizing me, not me baptizing you. I want to point out a couple of things. We're going to spend most of our time in verse 15, so I want to get there. But but just, I want to set it up. Look at verse 13. Jesus comes to be baptized by John. Intentionally. He wasn't just out for a stroll. Oh, look, some guy's baptizing. Ah, that sounds like fun. Jesus had a plan. He went there with a purpose, and that purpose was for John to baptize him. Now, in case you're not familiar with what baptism is, baptism is, is in general, to be washed in water. The, the word in the original Greek literally means to be immersed, to be dunked into water. And it had many different symbolic meanings. Christians were not the only ones to practice baptism. The Jewish people practiced a different sort of baptism, or at least it meant different things. The Pharisees would practice baptism. But basically what it meant was, I used to be my my own self. I used to go my own way. I had my life. That life is now gone. When you're lowered into the water, it was this idea, I am not that person anymore. I am dedicating myself to something new. And when you're raised back out of the water, it's this imagery not only of being purified and rinsed clean, but being a new person. So if you were a Gentile, that's a non-Jewish person, you wanted to become Jewish, they would practice a form of baptism. And it was this idea, I am giving up my old life, the idols I used to worship, and I am now worshiping the one true God. When Pharisees became a Pharisee, they were often baptized. I am not that person anymore. I am dedicating myself to being a religious teacher, a religious leader. So Jesus comes to John the Baptist, who is baptizing people, And it says in verse 14 that John believes that Jesus should baptize him. Why? Why is John shocked and why does he think that Jesus should be baptizing him? Let's look at a couple verses from last week very quickly just to set the stage. In Matthew chapter 3 verse 3, we see John's mission. He is the voice of one calling in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord. Right? So his mission is to prepare the way for the Lord. Felt like I got real quiet there. Am I still on? Am I still on? Okay. All right. I don't know what happened. Prepare the way for the Lord. John was preparing the way for Jesus to come. So here he is preparing the way and Jesus has come and he's thinking, great, you're in charge now. You do this. And Jesus goes, "Uh uh-uh, you need to baptize me. We look down to verse 11 in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus, or I'm sorry, John knows. He knew that the one that was going to come, that he now recognizes as Jesus, he knows that person is greater than him. He uses this this beautiful servant phrase, I'm not even fit to untie his sandals. I'm not fit to carry his sandals. Different translations have it a little differently. He knows that he is less than Jesus. And in his mind, the greater person should baptize the lesser person. That's how John's thinking about this. If we go back to verses 1 and 2 of Matthew chapter 3, we see John's message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is why he's baptizing people. We talked about this last week. Repentance is I'm going in a direction, I'm turning away from that, I'm repenting, 
and going in a different direction. It was, I am a sinner. I am living in rebellion against God. I'm turning away from that and trusting in the kingdom of heaven. And so John's message was to prepare people's heart for Jesus to come. So they were baptized with this idea, I am waiting for the Messiah. Now the Messiah comes and the Messiah says, okay, now you baptize me. I don't know about you, but I've got some questions. Jesus, what do you have to repent of? Right? If John's baptism is a baptism of repentance, why is Jesus being baptized? Jesus does not need to repent. Paul makes this clear in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin. There it is. He had no sin. None. Not a tiny little bit. Jesus never messed up, never sinned, never had a sinful thought or attitude or action. Never. So he has nothing to repent of. It was absolutely inconceivable to John that he should baptize Jesus. Jesus had nothing to repent of or turn from. He didn't need to stop the way he was going and turn to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was the one who had brought the kingdom of heaven near. So if John's baptism was preparing people for Jesus, why does Jesus want John to baptize him? Jesus gives us the answer, an answer that raises a lot of questions. And it's those questions I want to spend the bulk of our time on. Look at verse 15. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consents. Fulfill all righteousness. And John says, okay, I get it. I'll do it. I'll baptize you. And he does. What does Jesus mean by fulfilling all righteousness? We're going to go deep into that word right there. Okay? Like baptism, we're going to immerse ourselves in that word. Because if we get this word wrong in this passage, we're going to miss what Jesus is saying, what he's doing, and why John struggled and why he's now okay with it. But more than that, because that's all very kind of technical and like educational and stuff. And that's great if you're arguing theology with people, but it's more than that. It helps us to understand our own righteousness and where it comes from. So we're going to look at two ways of understanding righteousness. We're going to compare these. The one is Paul's method. The Apostle Paul has a very distinct way of teaching about righteousness. And this is probably what you're most familiar with. It's what I teach the most. It's what you're going to find in all the epistles from Paul. And what we need to look at is, is that the same thing that Matthew is talking about? Is Matthew using the word the same way as Paul? So let's really quick. I mean that. Let's go through Paul's way of explaining righteousness. Okay? For Paul, righteousness, and righteous means to be right with God. All right? To to be counted as worthy, to be accepted by God, to be right before God. For Paul, righteousness, we can think of it in two ways. One is financial. I know that sounds weird and and not exciting, (laughs) but Financial is the idea of uh, an account. In an account, you have debts, things that are pulled out of the account, and you have credits, things that go into the account, right? You with me so far? Okay, (laughs) stick with me. Credits and debits. Now, 
Paul talks about it this way in Romans 6.23. You might be familiar with this. For the wages of sin is death. See the financial metaphor there? The wages. You sin, you are earning something. You're not earning righteousness. You're earning death. So something is going into the account. It is a lack of righteousness. It is being worthy or guilty of death. Now, we often think this way about an accounting or balance of right and wrong. How many times have you heard this and maybe thought this? God is going to take each person and your good deeds are put on one side of a scale and your bad deeds are put on the other and he's going to see which one is heavier and, and which one is lighter. And if the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, then you're righteous and you're accepted. That image is not too far off. Paul is talking about it in that way. You have a credit for bad deeds and a credit for good deeds or a debit for bad deeds rather. And he uses it this way. So I said one was financial. The other is more of a criminal aspect, which is also somewhat financial. If you get a ticket, as I did the other day, <clears throat> I, I was... I was driving down the parkway and the cop pulled up behind me and he said, sir, do you know that your inspection is out of date? And I thought, oh boy, yes, I do. <laughs> it was only about a year and a half. But I mean, come on, I know. <laughs> to be fair, I had purchased the car in that time. I didn't own it a year and a half ago. I had purchased the car long enough ago that I knew better. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've filled out the ticket and I've sent it in and I'm waiting to find out how much I owe. So I got that hanging over me. But I owe something, right? There's the point. I did something wrong and I owe something. Paul's using it that way. In his mind, it's, it, that's kind of righteousness. Okay, you sinned, you are owed death. If you are righteous, you are, in a sense, owed life. Now, that's a very popular understanding. Here's the problem. Ready? Here's the catch. Romans 3, 10 through 11, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. The problem is twofold. One is we could never do enough right things to offset the evil that we have done. You might go, wait a minute, Dave, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I never killed anybody. I, 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 you know, I didn't get a ticket like you did. I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good person. Not like you. But we live our lives in rebellion against God. He's our creator, our maker, our Lord, our king. And we live so often as if he doesn't exist. So even if you have never committed a crime, if you are living your life as if God doesn't matter or doesn't exist, then you are living in sin, according to Scripture. You are unrighteous. And there is a debt to be paid on that. The penalty of sin is death. The other problem is, even if you could do enough good things to offset the bad things that you might have done, the Bible says our good things are like filthy rags. There is nothing we can do that is completely intrinsically good because our motivation is always off. Our attitudes are always selfish. We are sinners and everything we do is touched by our sin. 
So you can never do enough, and even the good things that we can do are touched by sin. Man, aren't you glad you came to church this morning? So encouraged right now. But here's where we have to understand the rest of Paul's understanding of righteousness. Righteousness must be a gift. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we have paid down our account. We owe a lot. We have a huge debt that we can never pay. God gives us a gift. The very righteousness of Christ is credited to our account. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption, that's a price that is paid, the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. Paul uses this accounting idea of righteousness, but he makes it very clear you can never repay what you owe, but Jesus has done it for you. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 through 31. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him or let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All right, so this is a glimpse into how Paul understands righteousness. And this is a glimpse, I would say, into the, the most prevalent way of explaining righteousness and sin among Christians today. And it is good and it is biblical. Okay? It's good. The question, though, is when we come to Jesus' statement of fulfilling all righteousness, is Matthew, who's the writer of this gospel, Is he writing the account of this based on Paul's understanding of righteousness? Because if we read that in, to fulfill all righteousness, there is a debt that needs to be paid. Christ needs to be baptized to fulfill that debt in order to be righteous. Whoa, put on the brakes. Well, that breaks all sorts of scripture right there. Christ has no debt to pay. There's no unrighteousness to overcome that he has to pour something into the account to overcome it. He has done nothing wrong. So we need to look at Matthew's way of understanding righteousness. And understand that Matthew's way and Paul's way go together. They're not overriding each other. They're not arguing with each other. But they are using the word in slightly different ways. And we need to be okay with that when we come to Scripture. Let the author of that book explain to us how he is using that word. Too often as as Christians, we read a word from one like Romans... And then we see the same word in Matthew and say, see, this equals that. Wait a minute. How is Matthew using it? I use words differently than my wife. We use words differently than each other. We have to understand when we come to Scripture, it can happen that way as well. So let's look at how Matthew uses this word. Matthew uses the word righteousness more than any other gospel writer, as much as twice as much more than any other gospel writer. He uses a lot in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' big sermon in Matthew. We'll see it in a couple weeks. But if you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's no financial aspect there. There's a hunger. I need that. I need the righteousness. Chapter 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. 
So, so now there's something about me that is seeking righteousness and bad things are happening to me, happening to me because of it. But there's a reward for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Chapter five, verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Chapter six, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. So righteousness for Matthew is not a debt to be owed or paid. It's not a balance in an account that needs to be weighed out and and can only be overcome by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is that, but he's using it slightly different. The Sermon on the Mount shows us that righteousness for Matthew is a way, a path, a direction. It is the way of the kingdom of heaven. And we are to long for, to desire to live that way, to follow that path. Now stick with me because I can see some of the wheels turning. Wait a minute. Hold on to that. Okay, let's go on. Chapter 13, verse 43. Our righteousness has eternal, or lack thereof, has eternal consequences. This is called the parable of the weeds. The farmer has sowed seed and it's grown up. An enemy comes in and sows weeds and those have grown up as well. And it says, um, after the weeds are collected and burned, then everything that causes sin and all who do evil are removed. And the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let him hear. So, so Matthew is saying, now we have two groups, the righteous and everybody else. And the righteous get into the kingdom of heaven and are saved and everybody else is in big, big trouble. Chapter 25, verse 46. Then they, this is those who did not uh, do for the least of these, if you remember that story from Jesus, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. There's a path and it leads to eternal life and it is the path of righteousness. We see throughout Matthew this emphasis on there are two ways. Think of the Robert Frost poem, two roads diverged in a wood and I took the one less traveled by. Matthew uses that idea as well, long before Robert Frost did. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, he records Jesus saying this, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. Do you know what the earliest Christians were called? We, we use that word Christians and it comes up in the book of Acts and it was actually a, it, it was kind of a bad word for Christians. It was a put down, not like it was a swear word, but it was a put down. It was an insult. You're just a little Christ. That's what Christians mean. And so the Romans used that and the Jewish people used that of Christians. And the Christian were like, hey, we kind of like that. I'm a little Christ. That's good. I'm following Christ. I want to be like that. I love that, that they kind of took something that was meant to insult them and, and they just owned it. But do you know what the Christians, what the early church was originally called? In Acts chapter 9, verse 2, the Christians are called those who belong to the way. Those who belong to the way. You see the path, a direction, a a course, those who belong to the way. Instead of walking this way, I'll go this way to stay true to what I said about repentance. Instead of walking this way, they have turned to a different way. That's how Matthew's using this. 
Matthew's way of explaining righteousness is to say that there are two ways. There is the way of Jesus, the way of righteousness, and then there is everything else. And the way of the kingdom of heaven is the way of Jesus, which is also the way of righteousness. Now, here's the problem. Because it kind of seems like either you're a really good person and you're walking in the way of righteousness and you're doing good things, or you're walking the other way and you're doing bad things. And it kind of seems like God's just going to look like at your deeds and say you're either doing good or you're doing bad. And if you're doing good, you get to go to heaven. And if you're doing bad, you have to go to hell. kind of seems like Matthew's saying that. There's one more verse on righteousness I want us to look at in Matthew. In this passage, let me set it up before I show you. In this passage, okay, I don't know where that came from. I missed a verse. In this passage, Jesus is hanging out in the home of a particularly awful sinner. Somebody who really has done nothing right. Somebody for which the the whole two-path thing, the way of righteousness and the way of sin and death, yeah, the way of sin and death completely applies to this guy. He is a horrible, horrible human being. Jesus is hanging out at his house with a bunch of other horrible human beings. Do you know who that man was? Matthew. The writer of this gospel, Jesus is at his house and he was a tax collector they don't even lump tax collectors in with sinner because it's like sinner was too good for the tax collectors. They were, here's sinners and they're horrible. Here's sinners. And they're horrible people. Tax collectors were like way down there in the basement. Okay? That's how awful people considered Matthew. And I won't go into all the cultural reasons why. But Jesus is asked why he's hanging out with these horrible tax collectors and sinners. And I want you to look at what Jesus replies. Listen to what Matthew hears about himself. Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Wait a minute. In the whole rest of the book, Jesus says, look, if you're going this way, your own way, the way of sin, you're headed toward eternal damnation. You're going this way, the way of righteousness and the way of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus' way, then you're going to be saved forever. But now Jesus comes and he says, but I'm not here to call the righteous, I'm here to call these guys the sinners. Understand what this meant for Matthew and what it means for us. Jesus provides a way for people on this path, our own path, the way of sin and death, through Jesus Christ to be plucked off that path and put on the other path through no credit of their own through no benefit of their own, but only because Jesus has called them. That's the gospel right there. And that's where Matthew and Paul are in absolute agreement. There is no way to go from here to there except through Jesus Christ. They're just using the word in slightly different ways. And here's why it matters. Righteousness in the Gospel of Matthew, is about kingdom living. It's about following God's way. And the only way we can live that way, the kingdom of heaven way, the righteous way, is by trusting Jesus and following Him. 
So why then does Jesus get baptized? Jesus' baptism is a signpost in history of him coming to the lost, like we're in the middle of the woods, and he's shining a light in, and he's saying, I am here, I'm going on that path, and you should follow me. He didn't need to turn away from anything, but he came to us. He wasn't lost in the woods. Jesus wasn't lost in sin, but we were. So he comes to us. He goes out to John in the wilderness where these people are, and he says, I am going to be baptized by you to fulfill all righteousness. Because righteousness is a way, and I'm about to show everybody what that way looks like. A little later on, after he's baptized and he goes through his trials and temptations that we'll look at over the next couple of weeks, Jesus says to his disciples, he calls them. How does he call them? Come, follow me. He doesn't sit the disciples down and say, now, do you believe in me? Do you accept these things about me? You know, those things are important in salvation. They're important when you come to scripture. They're important in theology. I'm not throwing them aside, but Jesus came and he said, follow me. Why? Well, like John says, I am the way, he said this about Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, let it be so now to fulfill all righteousness. Why was Jesus baptized? He was baptized so that he could show us the way. He was baptized so that he could identify with us and we could identify with him. Long ago in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, this was prophesied about the coming Messiah. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. That means he identified with us. He was one among us. So he's coming to us and he's saying, I am being baptized. Now follow me. He was baptized as an example for us. Here at the start of Jesus' public ministry, his first public act is to be baptized. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. He says, You want to know what it's to be a follower, what it's like to be a follower of me? You've got to quit going your own way. And you've got to turn, and you need to trust me and follow me. Jesus didn't have to turn from sin, but we sure do. And if Jesus, who was righteous to fulfill all righteousness, was baptized, how much more so do we need to make a choice to turn from our own way and to trust in him? And how much more so do we need to make a choice to say, I too need to publicly proclaim that. I too need to be baptized. Jesus was baptized to show the world what would come. He is bringing about a new way, a new kingdom through his death and his resurrection. And he calls us, I'm walking on this path. Follow me. Trust me. We see this again at the end of Jesus' public ministry, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. 
here at the end of his ministry, he again emphasizes baptism and links it to him, to trusting him and obeying in him. Friends, we need to listen to Matthew. And we need to understand that righteousness is not just a one-time decision. I prayed a prayer when I was five and I'm saved. It's a path. Where are you walking today? Who are you following today? Who are you serving? But it's also a path that you cannot put yourself on. You cannot keep yourself on. You cannot make yourself good enough for it. Jesus did that. But we still have to ask ourselves, how are we living And also, one last application before we move on. If you are a Christian, let me ask you very bluntly, have you been baptized? If the Son of God, who had nothing to repent of, set this as an example for us, who are we to say, I just don't like putting my head in the water? I hear that all the time. I don't like getting up in front of people. Could you imagine if Jesus Christ used examples or, or, or things like that? You know, you're going to go to the cross. I don't really like nails. When we are baptized, we declare who Jesus Christ is. And we put a signpost in our own life. We say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's almost like we're inviting everybody who witnesses that baptism or ever hears about it, come and talk to me. Listen to me. I want to tell you about Jesus who changed my life. We should be baptized. And quickly, something amazing happens after his baptism. Look at verses 16 and 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. I promise this will be short. We don't have time to go into this amazing passage. But at the heart and soul of this, God is taking this moment, God the Father, to proclaim throughout all of history. And to us today and to those who were there, don't miss who Jesus Christ is. Don't let another moment of your life go by and miss who Jesus Christ is. Is. We have the whole of the Trinity here. God the Father, a voice from heaven speaks. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove. God the Son, Jesus, is the one being baptized. People that say there's no Trinity in Scripture, there it is, this verse right here. They're all there. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. There's so much more going on here than we have time to deal with. But at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, God the Father is declaring, This is my Son. Follow him. Listen to him. When the Spirit descends on him, it's like a king being crowned. It's a public declaration to everybody gathered. This is your king. Jesus didn't not have the Holy Spirit before this moment. But this was a public sign from God to say, don't miss this. All of this is to point us to who Jesus Christ is. And for the rest of Jesus' earthly ministry, every word that he says comes from the authority that he is the very Son of God, the promised Messiah. Are you lost right now? 
probably not lost in the woods, but maybe you're a bit lost in your life. Maybe you've been stumbling around for a while trying to find your own way out. Wouldn't it be nice if somebody would come to you in your life with a light and say, this is the way. Friends, this is the way. The king has come to fulfill all righteousness and he has called to his disciples and he's calling to you and to me, come follow me. See the light of Jesus. Listen to the voice of the Son of God who through his baptism tells us, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And let me ask you again, if you've received Jesus as your Savior, have you been baptized? This is not a matter of whether or not you go to heaven or hell. That's all about Jesus. It's not about baptism. But this is a matter of will you be willing to be obedient to your Lord and Savior? And will you serve other people by showing them the gospel in your life through the waters of baptism? If you would like to be baptized, if you never have been, or maybe you were baptized as a baby and you say, you know, I've made a proclamation of faith. I want to declare that publicly now as an adult. Come and talk to me. Call Kathy in the church office. Give me a call. Shoot me an email. I will get together with you. I'm going to be gone this week. But eventually, I'll get together with you. And I would love to talk to you about baptism. I would love to get this big tub that's back here filled up with water and in worship to have people be baptized as a declaration that they are following Jesus Christ. And finally, for all of us, as we leave... What way are you living? If people looked at your life, would they see the way of Jesus? Would they see the way of righteousness? Because how we live does matter. Matthew says that over and over again. Jesus says that in Matthew over and over. He says, come follow me, but that means we're following him. Where are your steps going? And maybe you're here today and you're going, man, I'm going in the wrong direction. The same thing that puts you on the path in the first place can put you right back on it, and that's trusting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But he's calling you to turn away from where you're going and to follow Jesus. The king has come, and he's called us to follow him in the way of righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, it seems like such a simple act for Jesus to come in obedience and to be baptized. But what a declaration of truth in this passage. The way of righteousness. Righteousness being fulfilled by the Son of God so that in Him we can be made righteous. And God, ultimately, when we appear before You, and you are judging whether or not we are righteous. I praise you that all who have received Jesus as their Savior will be weighed not on our own righteousness, but on the righteousness of Jesus Christ that far outweighs our guilt and our sin, our past, our present, our future, and anything else. And we will stand before you and be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven because of Christ's righteousness. And we thank you for that. In his name we pray.
Amen.